in the big rock candy mountains you never change your socks and the little streams of alcohol come a trickling down the rocks the brakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad bulls are blind there's a lake of stew and a whiskey too you can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains in the big rock candy mountains the jails are made of tin and you can walk right out again as soon as you are in there ain't no short handle shovels no axes saws or picks i'm a going to stay where you sleep all day where they hung the turk that invented work in the big rock candy mountains this is our american stories and now jesse edwards brings us the story of a desk unlike any story of a desk that you've ever heard before August 24th, 1814, marks one of the darkest episodes in the War of 1812. On that day, British troops marched on Washington, burning public buildings, including the U.S. Capitol. Among the losses in the Capitol were the Senate chamber and all its contents. Reconstruction took until 1819, and when senators again took their seats in the rebuilt chamber, they occupied 48 new desks and chairs custom-made by Thomas Constantine, a New York cabinet maker. Constantine was paid $34 for each Senate desk and $46 for each chair. Today, all of Constantine's desks remain in use in the current Senate chamber, although his chairs have been replaced. As new states entered the Union, desks of similar design were ordered from other cabinet makers, although the four newest desks, those constructed for Alaska and Hawaii, were built in the Senate cabinet shop. There are noticeable differences in shape and dimension among the 100 desks. These result from the original semicircular arrangement in the old Senate chamber. A desk's shape reflected its position in the room. Aisle desks were narrow and angled, while the center was wider and square. If the oldest were arranged in the original layout, it is believed they would have formed a perfect semicircle. Many traditions pertaining to the Senate desks have evolved over the years, and each new class of senators that occupies them contributes to their heritage. Through careful documentation and diligent preservation, this rich legacy will be maintained for future generations. But there is one Senate desk unlike any of the others, and you wouldn't know by looking at it. Next to the eastern door to the Senate chamber, the first desk on the right in the last row of desks they call it the candy desk it all began on the republican side of the senate in 1968 when senator george murphy of california who had an insatiable appetite for candy started stocking his desk full of sweets that he would often share with his fellow senators The tradition has continued ever since and has even become a point of pride for the select few who preside over the candy desk. Senators John McCain and Rick Santorum have both sat in the coveted desk. The current and 16th tenant of the candy desk is Republican Senator from Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey. Since Hershey's chocolate is based in Pennsylvania, Senator Toomey gladly shares candy from his home state. Well, I am happy to be carrying on a great Senate tradition. It's the tradition of the Senate candy desk. For 50 years now, one desk on the Republican side of the aisle, the first desk that senators pass as they walk into the chamber, 
has been the official candy desk. And there's no state that should occupy this desk more than Pennsylvania because we are America's leading confectioner. We have more candy companies than any other state. We have 10,000 people working in this industry, and it's just a terrific industry, and I happen to really like Three Musketeer bars, so I'm delighted to play this role. Sugar. strange thing is, according to Senate ethics rules, Senator Toomey and anyone who bears the responsibility as keeper of the candy desk is required to place only candy that originates from their home state into said candy desk. You see, every candy company in the world would love to have their candy inside the Senate candy desk. Think of it as a form of lobbying, because that's exactly what it is. Now you might think that keeping a desk full of candy wouldn't be this complicated. But the rule states that senators are not allowed to accept donations of more than $100 per year. The loophole is that this rule does not apply if the donations are manufactured in that senator's home state. Now get this. If you wanted to add your brand of candy to the already existing pool of U.S. Senate Candy Desk Candy, your company and all the other companies that want to donate must first be represented by the National Confectioners Association. The trade organization that advances, protects, and promotes chocolate, candy, gum, and mints, and the companies that make up the $35 billion U.S. confectionery industry. The Democrats have also had a candy desk since at least 1985, a roll top located on the front wall belonging to the United States Senate Democratic Conference Secretary Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, is also filled with sweets. However, the Democrats manage their candy desk on the honor system. Not to get all political, but it's interesting to see the way each side of the aisle chooses to distribute candy differently. On the right, candy companies pay lobbyists to help get their sweet sugary product into the gaping maws of the Senate body. On the left, it's a communal dish where people can pay as they wish. On the right, they find loopholes around ethics rules in order to maximize the quantity and quality of candy that makes it into the desk. On the left, the most popular candy was the plain old Hershey's Kiss. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Hershey's Kisses are one of the most popular brands of candies in the U.S. with more than 60 million produced each day at the company's two factories. The Hershey Company ships roughly 100 pounds of chocolate and other candy four times a year to fill the candy desk. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great story, Jesse. I know a lot about Congress and American history. I did not know anything about the candy desk, and I feel like a really terrible boss. (laughs) And so he did a quick poll. The Our American Stories candy desk will be stocked with, well, Sour Patch Kids for Faith, Jelly Bellies for Greg, Peanut butter M&M's for Stan, huh? Skittles for Jesse. Good and plenty for me. Well, for my wife, when she comes in occasionally, some Snickers, the little baby Snickers. And for Reagan, my beautiful daughter, Kit Kats. And of course, Alex, well, he's not here. This is Our American Stories. The story of the candy desk.
There's a killer on the road His brain is squirming like a toad Take a long holiday Let your children play If you give this man a ride Sweet family will die Killer on the road This is Our American Stories And back in the day, Opportunity called people of courage to chase the sun into the plains of the new American frontier. These men and women shaped a nation and birthed a new American mythology. Today, with the passing of time, the myth of the notorious highway robber Black Bart is coming face to face with reality. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of Black Bart. Ralphie's fantasy encounter with Black Bart in the 1983 film A Christmas Story leads one to believe that Black Bart was some desperado. What have we got here, folks? Well, we figure he's Black Bart, uh, Ralph. Well, says me, my trusty old Red Rider carbine action two on the shot range model air rifle. Lucky I got a compass in the stock. Well, I think I better have a look here. Oh, he's not. In the 1870s, there was a dime novel that was loosely based on Black Bart's true story. A Christmas Story author, Gene Shepard, read this novel as a kid and included Ralphie's reincarnation of Black Bart as a desperado. Okay, Ralphie, you win this time, but we'll be back! Adios, Bart! But if you do come back, you'll be pushing up daisies! But Black Bart's real story is far more fantastical than Ralphie's imagination. To tell the story of America's most successful and eccentric stagecoach robber is one of America's greatest storytellers and author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Roger McGrath is also a regular on the History Channel. Let's begin with Dr. Roger McGrath and the story of Highwayman Black Bart. Black Bart was the most successful highwayman in American history. For more than eight years, uh, this would be from 1875 to 1883, he preyed on stagecoaches, robbing 29 of them. No other road agent could match Black Bart's record. Moreover, Black Bart was a gentleman. He always treated everyone courteously and took only the express box. He left the passengers untouched. Black Bart probably got away with upwards of $30,000. That would be something like $2 million in today's money. Black Bart's real name was Charles Bowles. He was born on a farm in upstate New York in 1831. His parents were recent immigrants from England. Little is known about his early years, other than he grew up as a typical farm boy. At age 18, he and his older brother David left the farm to join the gold rush of 1849. They first prospected on the American River and then throughout the Motherlode country. 
Life in the diggings was rugged, and many a prospector died from disease, accident, or gunplay. David Bowles was one of those who met an early end. He grew ill and died in July 1852. Here's Black Bart biographer Gail Jenner. Charles was devastated. He had been the one to truly want to come out to California. He felt guilty. He was a restless soul. That played very heavily into the choices he made later on. Charles continued to prospect, in fact, for another two years. And then he drifted back to the Midwest. In Decatur, Illinois, he met and married a girl named Mary and settled down and began raising a family. When the Civil War erupted, Charles enlisted in the Union Army. For more than three years, he served with distinction. He fought in several major battles and was severely wounded in one of them but returned to fight again. He even served under General Sherman on his brutal march to the sea. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. To march with Sherman's army, you certainly are fit. He was very demanding of his soldiers. And being able to understand what trails will get you where, what trails could be easily ambushed and therefore you set up defenses for them at the proper places. That would be a value to someone who later becomes known as Black Bart. Charles rose to the rank of first sergeant before this last battle, and then just before the war ended, was commissioned a second lieutenant. After the war, his gold fever returned. He left his wife Mary and his daughters in Illinois to go off to the mines of Montana and Idaho on foot. Every so often he sent Mary a letter, saying that he'd be on his way home soon. The last letter Mary received came from Silver Bow, Montana in August, 1871. Why he stopped writing after that, we don't know. As the months went by with no further word, Mary grew frantic and finally sold the family home to raise money for her search for her husband. Meanwhile, the missing husband continued prospecting, but as word as Montana's riches spread, the competition for claims increased. Well, you can thank Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo. They just bought me out. Seems like they aimed to buy up the whole territory. Large companies rushed to capitalize on local strikes and eliminate the competition. They'd buy up businesses and all lands surrounding successful claims. Here again is Gail Jenner. There was mining going on in various sections of Montana. He did have a claim where he was in competition with other people also setting up claims, and there was a lot of violence that was occurring around him. Mr. Bow! Welcome, gentlemen. What can I do for you? We want to buy your claim. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Good day. It doesn't look like much is coming. There'll be plenty just as soon as the water comes up. Good day. It'd be a shame if it didn't. Wells Fargo began consolidating its stage lines for new mining towns in Idaho, Utah, and Montana. 
Rumors of the company going into the mining business make Bowl suspicious. Just days after receiving offers for his claim, the water supply suddenly dried up. His claim was now worthless. Bowles is convinced it's no coincidence. Here's author of the American West, W.C. Jameson. What Wells Fargo did is divert the stream from which Bowles was panning the gold to where he was forced to abandon his gold mine. Many historians believe that this was the moment he set his sight on one of the most powerful companies in the West, Wells Fargo, making the company out to be responsible for his misfortune. A hardworking miner and former Union soldier with dreams of striking it rich made a bold decision to extract revenge. In 1874, Bowles left his claim and moved to the cosmopolitan hub of Northern California. Consumed by revenge, Bowles completely broke ties with his family, cut himself off from the past, and reinvented himself. He moved to San Francisco, all the while nursing this anger, this hatred toward Wells Fargo. In preparation for his revenge, Bowles did his homework. I watched the stages from a second camp, far from my home camp ascertain the exact time they passed. I found them to be at the same spot every morning at 7 a.m. All over Northern California, they were shipping lots of gold from one place to another. They had over 3,000 miles of stagecoach roads. It was a big target for thieves. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this riveting story, the real story, the story behind the story of Black Bart. And by the way, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. Let's pick up where we left off. In July 1875, a stagecoach with a Wells Fargo Express box was working its way up a steep grade on the way from Sonora to Copperopolis in the Mother Load country. Just a few miles short of Copperopolis, a hooded figure suddenly jumped from behind a boulder. Put down that box. Please. Well, 
The demand from this hooded figure was reinforced by a double-barreled shotgun aimed at the stagecoach driver. The robber's head was covered by a flour sack with two holes cut for the eyes, and even his boots couldn't be seen. They were covered by thick socks to avoid leaving tracks. As the driver grabbed the express box, Iwaman yelled an order over his shoulder. If he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys. The driver glanced up at the hillside behind the highwayman and thought he saw at least a half dozen rifle barrels aimed his way. It's called a Quaker gun trick. Used in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, it's named for the Quakers, who, like bulls, oppose violence. The trick uses sticks to look like guns and logs to look like cannons to fool the enemy into believing they're facing a force much larger than they actually are. With a real sense of urgency, the driver threw the express box onto the road. The highwayman quickly removed several bags of gold coins. A frightened woman passenger tossed her purse out of the stagecoach and into the road. The highwayman picked it up bowed and returned it to her, saying in a deep and resonant voice, Madam, I have no desire of your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo. I don't know what you're reaching for, friend. Charles has poked sticks through the bushes so that it appears that there could be other guns around. Let's give him what he wants. He's got his mask on, he's, he's got a duster on, he's got his gun pointed. He was an enigma. He was a very hard man to figure out. Good day to you, sir. Thank you, Kai. He disappeared into the brush and escaped on foot over 120 miles through rugged terrain, through the mountains, and back to San Francisco. He returned to high society in plain sight, where he developed an alter ego. He called himself Charles Bolton. Bolton's reputation grew as he became known as a successful gold prospector and socialite. Here's Old West historian Chris Entz. Charles Bowles went by Charles Bolton because it sounds very sophisticated. It has a certain dignity associated with it. He is as comfortable living in the wilderness as he is in the city. Yes, sir. More champagne. Circumstances compelled me. I yielded to the temptation of crime only after enduring severe struggles from which I had no control. Following his first robbery, Bowles took odd jobs that pulled him away from the city and gave him access to new targets. He was trying just a little bit of everything. He tried school teaching for a while, which would have been unnatural for him because he was intelligent. He was sharp. <laughs> now let us turn to the case of Summerfield and that notorious bandit, Black Bart. He's incredibly well-read. In addition to Shakespeare and that kind of thing, he also reads the Sacramento Union. And in the Union paper is a story written by an attorney who does make up this character named Bartholomew Graham, or Black Bart. Charles Bowles adopted the name and transformed into highwayman Black Bart. Following Black Bart's first robbery, 
Wells Fargo detective James Hume was put on the case. Here again is Gail Jenner and historian Marshall Trimble. James Hume chose to become the kind of person who would never quit. He has an obsessive, compulsive kind of desire to make things right. Gentlemen. This is the beginning of this detective period. When there's a robbery, you don't just get out there and look for horse tracks. It gets much more sophisticated. Technology and such is starting to change as to how to track these guys down. And this is what Hume is really adept at. Welcome to school, boy. Hume was one of the great detectives of the Old West. But this Black Bart character had him stumped. Gentlemen, our efforts up to this point have been unacceptable. He's making a mockery of us, and I will not stand for that. Hume begins to put together that this man is quite capable of covering long distances in between the robberies. He knows that it's not a multiple-person job, that this is a, a lone man. Beginning with a second stagecoach robbery, Black Bart would leave behind a verse or two of poetry. Hume, a man as cunning and restless as the bandit himself, Ribbon. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor, and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of Black Buck. Poet. He's mocking me. He's mocking me! Hume didn't know what to do with witness testimonies. What was his behavior, his demeanor? Did he threaten you or take any of your personal belongings? No, sir, he was polite. Said please and thank you. And that's what's left of the cash box over there. The public had doubts about Detective Hume and Wells Fargo. Hume took it personally. Wells Fargo is putting more and more pressure on James Hume. The newspapers are having a field day. There were lots and lots of articles about who is this Black Bart, and people are ridiculing both James Hume and Wells Fargo. They're becoming a joke, and so they're determined now to try and figure this out, and lots of pressure is coming from lots of different directions. Here's a quote from Hume in the San Francisco Examiner in 1884. I refuse to buy a romanticized image of Black Bart as fabricated by the press. He is a fraud who is Robin Hoodwinking a gullible public. Jim Hume began to piece together a physical description of Black Bart. Bart was armed, but he didn't shoot back, though. Nope. Not his style. No horse track. He escapes on foot. As Black Bart's stage robberies continued, the price yep. on his head increased. Wells Fargo offered a $300 reward. State of California chipped in another 300 and the U.S. government 200 The $800 total was really quite a sum back in the 1870s, something like $80,000 today. And when we come back, what happens next? And what a story, by the way. Feels a little bit like The Great Gatsby with a little bit of Jack London in it. It's a thriller. It's an American classic. Never knew the rest of this story, and you're about to hear it. Charles Bowles becomes Charles Bolton. 
The world, at the time and now, knows him as Black Bart. This is our American stories. The story of Black Bart continues after these messages. And again, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. to this song Black Bart and that's from heavy metal band Volbeat by the way they've opened for Metallica their vocalist and guitarist Michael Paulson told Classic Rock Magazine why he chose to write about this particular highwayman quote Black Bart was definitely one of the most interesting characters we all know Doc Holliday so I wanted to bring in one character that people could see and think yeah we know that guy I didn't want to bring in Billy the Kid and Wyatt Earp or people like that because while they're interesting, I don't think we needed another story about them. And that's why we're bringing you this story. And now for the final installment, the final chapter of the life of Black Bart. Black Bart's luck nearly ran out on his 23rd stagecoach robbery. The stage was on its way from Laporte to Oroville when Black Bart blocked its path. Easy, boys. Easy does it. Keep those hands where I can see them. Nice and easy. Would you be so kind as to throw down that box? I'll get it right now for you, sir. Instead, the Wells Fargo guard swung his rifle around and fired. Black Bart leaped into the brush and ran for it. They didn't know it, but the bullet fired at Black Bart creased the outlaw's head. A fraction of an inch change in trajectory would have spelled the end for Black Bart. On a Sunday in November 1883, Black Bart's luck finally did run out. Early that morning, a stagecoach pulled out of Sonora bound for Milton. The driver of the stage is a veteran of the run, Raisin McConnell. At Reynolds Ferry on the Stanislaus River, McConnell picked up a passenger, 19-year-old Jimmy Rolleri. Rolleri operated the ferry, but it was still early in the morning. He thought he might go up the hill a ways and do a little hunting. 
When the sage began the long climb, O'Leary jumped off with a Winchester rifle in hand. Stage had nearly reached the summit when a hooded highwayman leaped from the brush. He trained a shotgun on McConnell. Throw down that box. I... I can't. Please. Bolt it to the floor. Well, it's lucky for you I brought my tools. Easy does it. We wouldn't want to spook the horses. Now come down off that stage, friend, and start walking and don't stop. McConnell tried to signal for Larry, who was casually walking up the road. Finally, McConnell got his attention. Just then, the highwayman straightened up with a sack full of gold. Orlary fired. Highwayman stumbled, but managed to spring into the brush and disappear. McConnell reported the holdup. The local county sheriff, Ben Thorne, and his deputies were soon at the scene of the crime. They found a number of things the highwayman had left behind in his hasty departure. There was a black derby hat, two paper bags containing crackers and sugar, a pair of binoculars, and a handkerchief. Once back in his office, Sheriff Thorne inspected the items left behind at the scene of the robbery. He noticed some badly faded lettering on the handkerchief. He turned the handkerchief over to Wells Fargo Detective Jim Hume, who in turn gave the handkerchief to Harry Morris. Hume had hired Morris six months earlier to do nothing but work on the robberies of Black Bart. Morris had recently retired as sheriff of Alameda County, and now he had his own private detective agency. He was one of the great lawmen of the Old West. Fresh sign. When uh, James discovers the handkerchief, he was delighted, and as he examines it, he sees the mark, FX07, and he knows this was, in fact, a laundry mark. This man must be found. Hume decides we're going to have to track this laundry mark. Take your men and leave no stone unturned. So they go to 93 different laundries in the San Francisco area. Yes, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Is that your mark? Uh, yes, that's our mark. From one of our customers. C.E. Bolton. He's a local gold prospector. Since Hume thought that Black Bart lived in San Francisco, Morris began his investigation there. Now, under the guise of a business proposition, Morris was introduced to Charles Bolton. Bolton looked every inch the mine owner he purported to be. He was dressed in an expensive tailored wool suit and a bowler hat. He carried a walking stick, a diamond ring was on one finger, and a heavy gold watch was suspended from a gold chain. He was handsome with deep-set blue eyes. He stood about five foot eight and was ramrod straight. He looked anything but a robber. Morris managed to get Bolton to an office where Jim Hume waited. So word on the street is you're quite the successful gold prospector. Tell me, Mr. Bolton, where are your minds located? Well, if it's one thing I've learned, sir, it's not to disclose too much information to a perfect stranger.
Mr. Bolton, I'd like you to meet Detective James Hume. Minutes later, a captain from the San Francisco Police Department arrived, took Bolton into custody. At the police station, Bolton was placed under arrest. He feigned astonishment and asked for what possible cause was he being arrested. Hume answered, because you are Black Bart. The infamous highwayman and poet. had a premonition that this would happen today. Aren't you the lucky one? Charles Bowles wanted them to know that it was him. And to be able to tease and to play with the people that have been chasing him and trying to get at this, it gave him pleasure. You do want somebody to know. Buckbart pleaded guilty to the last of his robberies. Whereas the said C.E. Bolton is convicted of robbery by his own admission, he is therefore ordered, adjudged, and sentenced to San Quentin, the state prison for the period of seven years. He became a model prisoner. Take him away. And was released in January 1888. After serving a little more than four years, he was then 57 years old. Reporters waited outside for his release. Black Bart, are you going back to your life of robbing stagecoaches? No. I'm giving up my life of crime. Are you going to go back to writing poetry? Did you hear me, son? I said I'm done committing crimes. After being released from San Quentin, Black Bart returned to San Francisco, and there he was offered the opportunity of appearing on stage in a theatrical production. Somebody wanted to take advantage of his notoriety, but he refused. Jim Hume had his men shadow Black Bart, but suddenly one day, early in March 1888, Black Bart gave him the slip. Bowles was a pretty smart guy. It is likely that he knew that, that Hume was following him. Hume perhaps had a hunch that maybe Bowles might return to his nefarious ways. Reports had Black Bart in several different Western states, then in Mexico, Canada, Japan, China, and finally Australia. None of these reports, though, was ever confirmed. Black Bart, America's most successful highwayman, had simply disappeared. And what a story. And if you want to hear it again or share it with friends, again, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Boy, this story has it all. Guy's comfortable in the wilderness, in the big city. His brother dies early. He blames himself, tries to make a living honestly, feels like a big bad business had taken advantage of him. And by the way, we love telling stories about good businesses, but sometimes there are some bad ones. And he felt like Wells Fargo had cheated him out of his stake. And so he was going to take it back. 
What a story and great work as always, Greg Hengler. And by the way, Black Bart and James Hume reminds me of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Two people joined at the hip forever. And they are. Not sure why this isn't a movie, or hasn't been, but it should be. This is Lee Habib. Charles Bolton's story. Charles Knowles' story. Black Bart's story. They're all the same guy. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're going to dig in and tell the story of an American entrepreneur, an internet impresario and personality, and his name is Gary Vaynerchuk, known as Gary V, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru. First known as a leading wine critic who grew his family's wine business from three to $60 million. He's also an angel investor and advisor to Uber, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, among others. He's a regular keynote speaker at global entrepreneurship and technology conferences, and we just think the guy's story is fascinating and his advice really compelling. Like many great American stories, Gary V's story starts with an immigrant family coming to the United States to pursue the American dream. I was born in, uh, in Belarus, in the former Soviet Union, and my family immigrated here when I was three years old. It was very, very difficult. We were extremely poor. As a matter of fact, <laughs> this stage is dramatically bigger than the studio apartment that me and my grandparents, parents, and great-grandparents lived in. It was difficult, mainly because great-grandma was kind of crazy, uh, um, but also because we had no cash, we didn't speak the language. Grandma got mugged a weekend, and Queens, New York was not the paved streets of gold that my Russian parents thought it was going to be. It was the late 70s, it was the Carter years. My dad was a construction worker in Russia. That's what he thought he was gonna do in the US, but clearly that wasn't gonna happen. The great uncle that was gonna kinda take care of us, my dad's great uncle, while we were in Italy getting our visas changed, because I don't know if you remember, but Russia and America weren't best friends back then. So it took a while to get here. They wanted to make sure I wasn't a spy. Um, he died, so that didn't work out um, for anybody. Um, and we came to the US and it was a struggle. This great uncle of my dad's was very well off and he owned a small liquor store in New Jersey. So that's pretty much what my dad did. He commuted from Queens, New York to Clark, New Jersey I still make fun of him because I'm convinced that he spent more on gas than he was getting paid. And he started our lives for us. And between my dad's hard work, and I didn't know my dad until I was 14, and we'll get to that in a minute, and the fact that my mom, how do I put this smartly, is the greatest human being of all time, and instilled so much, thank you, and instilled 
so much self-confidence in me that it should probably be illegal and is clearly the foundation of everything I'm going to achieve in my life. Um, we start our lives. He started making money at a very young age, but his father had different plans for young Gary V. I had seven lemonade stands when I was six years old. So I had a lemonade stand franchise. How many, how many people here remember the big wheels? You remember, got it? Yeah, those were awesome. I used to drive my big wheels around Edison, New Jersey to pick up my cash like I was Tony Soprano. It's crazy. I learned a lot of business lessons there. This one kid, Eric Conrad, his parents were divorced. I didn't understand, I was so little. I didn't understand why he would be in our neighborhood in the summer, but not in the winter. He would come every summer. He was a baller. He would make his own signs. He was a hustler. I'm sure he's doing well now. And I learned my first lesson. He would, you know, I would give them all 50 cups. Cups for a quarter, it was easy math. He would steal cash. He would take some, but he sold so much more than everybody else that I never got rid of him. And so it's very funny what you can learn and I've used that concept you know, still to this day. So it's funny what you can learn and where I really started learning business was when I was 12 years old because when I was 12 years old, I started a massive baseball card business and I was selling $1,000 to $2,000 a weekend in the malls of New Jersey and that was tremendous. You know, I had like $10,000 cash under my bed when I was 12 and let me tell you something. When you're 12 and you have 10 G's of cash under your bed and you're not selling weed, you're doing a good job. <laughs> Very good job. So I was happy about that. That was awesome. And then I turned 14 and my dad ruined my life. He walked in, he said, you're going to work today. I said, what? I have a baseball card show. He said, no you don't. You don't mess with Russian immigrant dads. I decided I should probably go if I wanted to continue growing. Um, so. We, we, we went to the liquor store, I cried the whole drive home to the store, cried, real cry. 14, I'm, not, I'm proud, I cry, cry, devastated. Dad, how much are you gonna pay me? Two bucks an hour. I started crying much harder. <laughs> and I proceeded to spend 10 hours in a basement bagging ice and made 20 bucks for the day. Instead of going to the mall, hanging out with friends and girls and selling baseball cards. Clearly my life had taken a bad turn. And this is what I did for the next two years. It was devastating, I hated it, and my life from 14 to 16 professionally was dark. Gary's father had finally let him out of the basement when he realized a golden opportunity that would change his life forever. About 25 people came in and asked for the same thing. Camus Special Select 1990 Cabernet Sauvignon. It was the Wine Spectator Wine of the Year. And finally, you know, people are coming in, we had sold out of it the prior week because it just got announced. And finally, you know, people are coming in, do you have it? No, and they're leaving and you know, the entrepreneurial DNA is like going off. I'm like, this sucks. This is not good business. I don't like this. We have like six parking spots and they're all taken up by people that can't buy something. I'm like, I'm gonna take a back order. We didn't have a back order system, but I didn't care because I was going to school on Monday. <laughs> so, guy, next guy that comes in, I'm getting a back order. Guy comes in. Sir, what's your name? You know, da-da-da, got his name, address, phone number. How much would you like? I'll take 10 cases. So I'm like, man, this guy's an alcoholic. <laughs> I was like, are you gonna drink all that? Are you having a party? He goes, no, 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 I collect wine. That was it. 
at that moment, I can, I, you know how you can, you know how like when big things happen, you can, I can literally, I remember the weird t-shirt I was wearing, I was sitting in the middle of the store, my life changed because I sat there and sit, because at this point I wanted to help my family business. As any good punk entrepreneur kid, you think everything your dad is doing is wrong, right? And I see all these things that I can fix, but I wasn't interested in the subject matter, right? I was already thinking about what was I gonna do when I converted this whole thing into a baseball card store, right? <laughs> I started learning about wine. No 16-year-old should know as much about the Loire Valley in France as I did. I was so ridiculously confident and I so knew what was gonna happen that I realized that high school was the last vacation I was ever gonna have. And you're listening to Gary Vee, his story in his own words, serial entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, a guru on all things web and digital. More on his story, more from him, Gary Vee's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. Gary V's story continues here. Again, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru and personality. He was not your average student, Gary V, and he struggled with school as he tried to grow his father's wine business. Somewhere around fifth grade, I realized I did not give a crap about Saturn. Algebra wasn't gonna do it for me. And so what I did was I deployed and honed my skills at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So by the time I fell in love with the notion of what that was gonna be, that was already ingrained in me. I thought I was gonna open up 8,000 wine and liquor stores, the Toys R Us of wine, sell the franchise, buy the New York Jets. Here's where the story starts getting relevant to you. I go to college. I'm playing Madden 95 in my dorm room. Dominating, by the way. <laughs> my friend runs in and he says, you have to come and see this. I finish my game, I walk into a room and there are eight 18-year-old dudes hanging around a computer. Now, for a lot of the youngsters in this room, you don't recall this, I was 18 years old at this point and probably spent less than three hours on a computer in my life. By being a DNF student and getting an F in computer class, I was able to stay off the computer, right? <laughs> I get on there. In eight minutes, somehow, I end up on a message bulletin board in AOL that's selling and buying baseball cards. In 14 minutes, I make a transaction. Within 20 minutes of ever being on the internet, I said, my God, I don't need to open up 8,000 stores. I'm gonna do something on this. 18 months later, I launched one of the first three e-commerce wine businesses in America called winelibrary.com. Don't clap. Here's why. The first 18 months that that site ran, that site cost $15,000 to build. We were a small family business. $15,000 to build that website. In the first 18 months, because I was still at school, I wasn't fully back at the liquor store, in the first 18 months on that $15,000 investment in 1996, seven, eight internet world, where most people still weren't on it, that $15,000 investment brought back 
$480 in sales. I don't know how many of you have a Soviet father, <laughs> but Sasha Vaynerchuk was not happy with the ROI. This, this failure taught Gary a very important lesson about success. It was one of the more important lessons I've learned in business. The disproportional reason so many people in here will not win. Let's just get right to the chase. It's your lack of patience. For some unknown reason, when people go into ventures like this and other things, they somehow miraculously think it's gonna happen in five minutes. That you're the one person in the world, whatever you guys call your big club and put posters of each other up on, you think you're gonna be in that circle in five minutes for some reason, because you're the most charismatic, you figured out some weird system, you've got it. And the lack of patience is what hurts so many people. And so, by losing so much money in those first 18 months, I had walking into a system that I had to be patient, I had to build, I had to work. From 22 to 30 years old, for eight years, in my 20s, I worked 15 hours a day, seven days a week, in my dad's liquor store. Today, with all the things that have happened to me, I get emails on Facebook from friends I went to high school with, often starting with, Gary, you're so lucky. I reply to every single one of them, all of them, with the reply of an opening line first, Jan, great to see you again. You look great, kid's super cute. P.S. I am super not lucky. Let me remind you, Rick, remember when we graduated college and you went to the Jersey Shore every weekend and hooked up with chicks and drank beer? I worked. Rick. In those 15, 18 hours a day out of school, I grew my dad's business from a three to a $60 million business, which meant I was 27 years old running a $60 million business, and I was paying myself $54,000 a year. You know why? Because I'm patient. Because I don't need a cool watch. I don't need a fat whip. I want to build something. I want to build something. From there, Gary continued to build by using new online tools to deliver content. There was something called Google. I looked at it, I saw this new ad product where if you searched for a wine, you could buy the first result? That was insane to me. I thought that was incredible. And so I bought the word wine and many other words like Cabernet and Pinot Noir the day Google AdWords started. Uh, how many people here have done Google AdWords in their career? Very nice. I owned the word wine the day Google AdWords started for five cents a click for nine months before anybody bid me up. And that worked. And I kept going and then my career took a massive change that I think will really impact a lot of people in this room if you follow this blueprint. There was a new website out that I was intrigued by. It was called YouTube. Everybody in the world was really not ready for online video, it hadn't happened yet. I've been wanting to like play in that space. I finally saw this site, YouTube, it was a couple months old. There was not a single video on YouTube that had a million views yet, period, on the whole platform. So seven months after YouTube came out, I started Wine Library TV, which was the first time I was doing content, not advertising. And the premise of the show was very simple. 
I sat at my desk with four bottles of wine and I had somebody videotape me drinking it for 20 straight minutes. (laughs) It was a great gig. And somehow a year later, hundreds of thousands of people watched me taste wine and give my thoughts. And what I did was I understood the wine business at that point. I understood my craft at that point. How many people here have a friend or relative that is fairly into wine? Raise your hands. So you guys know exactly what I know, which is the second somebody gets just a little bit of wine knowledge, you're drinking the wrong year. Shut up. So what I did was by knowing that, I talked to people about wine instead of down to them. I talked about wine the way it actually smelled and tasted to me instead of the words on the back of the label. I called wines, you know, this reminds me of what a racquetball smells like when you first open the container. (laughs) Or if I ate an entire pack of Big League Chew and swallowed it, this is what this tastes like. Or when it didn't go as well, if you were at a farm and a sheep farted in your face, this is what (laughs) this wine tastes like. Gary Vee then goes on to talk about the importance of what we call social media regarding attention, sales, and connecting with people. Everybody was talking about this app called Twitter. Everybody thought it was the stupidest thing of all time because who cares if you're walking the dog or eating pizza? I thought it was the future of email. I invested in Twitter. I made a video about it. Facebook saw it. I spoke at Facebook. I became friends with Zucks, I invested in Facebook, and then I saw a bunch of high school kids playing on Tumblr, and I invested in Tumblr. I'm rich. <laughs> I run a company right now called VaynerMedia. We're a $100 million a year strategy and creative and media agency. We have Under Armour and Toyota and Dove and Budweiser and the biggest brands in the world paying us to sell stuff on the internet. Let's start with a couple things that you need to know. Social media. It doesn't exist, it's a slang term. Social media is the slang term for the current state of the internet. If you are sitting in this crowd and still not devoted to these platforms, you will lose because the only thing that people care about in marketing and sales that are smart and successful is attention. And if you don't realize that everybody's attention is now in their phone, you are not paying attention to society. How many people in this room, in this arena, (laughs) how many people in this arena are always within arm's reach of their cell phone in every 24 hour window? Over 50% of everybody's time in the world on a phone is spent on a social network. This is where we live. And for you to sit in this audience and disrespect Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, all these platforms is an insane thing. When I had 50,000 followers on Twitter, I could get more people to do something than I can today at 1.3 million followers on Twitter. It's why when you roll up at me and go, I have this many followers, I don't give a crap. It doesn't matter how many followers you have, it matters how many followers you have that care. You're not paying the bills with 100,000 Instagram followers that you bought on eBay, jerk. Yep, that's exactly right. You're listening to Gary V. His story, by the way, and his advice, if you're in marketing or anything like it or advertising, that last piece is for you. Gary V's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to their great online courses at hillsdale.edu. And again, on this day in history, the world lost one of the finest comedic geniuses of the 20th century. His name was Jerome Horowitz. While that name might not be familiar, his nickname is bound to ring a bell. Here's Jesse. Jerome Lester Horowitz was better known by his stage name, Curly Howard. He was an American comedian and vaudevillian actor best known as the most outrageous and energetic member of the Three Stooges, which also featured his older brothers Moe and Shimp Howard, along with Larry Fine. An untrained actor, Curly was known for his high-pitched voice and vocal expressions like... And... And who could forget... Curly Howard was born Jerome Lester Horowitz in the Bensonhurst section of the Brooklyn Borough of New York City. Of Lithuanian Jewish ancestry, he was the fifth of five Horowitz brothers. Because he was the youngest, his brothers called him Babe to tease him. Although when his older brother Shemp Howard married Gertrude Frank, who was also named Babe, the brothers called him Curly to avoid confusion. We're not ordinary people. <laughs> We're morons. A quiet child, Curly rarely caused problems for his parents. Something his older brothers, Moe and Shimp, excelled in. Hey, I got an idea. Shut up, I don't want to hear it. He was a mediocre student, but excelled as an athlete on the school basketball team. He didn't graduate from high school, but kept himself busy with odd jobs and constantly followed his older brothers, whom he idolized. He was also an accomplished ballroom dancer and singer, who regularly turned up at the Triangle Ballroom in Brooklyn. When Curly was just 12 years old, he accidentally shot himself in the left ankle while cleaning a rifle. Mo rushed him to the hospital and saved his life. The wound resulted in a noticeably thinner left leg and a slight limp. He was so frightened of surgery that he never had the limp corrected. While with the Three Stooges, he developed his famous exaggerated walk to mask the limp on screen. Curly was interested in music and comedy and would watch his brother Shemp and Mo perform as Stooges in Ted Healy's vaudeville act. He also liked to hang out backstage, although he never participated in any of those early routines. He married his first wife, Julia Rosenthal, on August 5, 1930, but the couple had their marriage annulled shortly afterwards. Curly's first onstage break was as a comedy musical conductor in 1928 for the Orville Knapp Band. Moe later recalled that his performances usually overshadowed those of the band. Are you trying to give me the double talk? Though Curly enjoyed the gig, he watched as Moe, Shimp, and Larry Fine made it big as some of Ted Healy's stooges. Vaudeville star Healy had a very popular stage act in which he would try to tell jokes or sing, only to have his stooges wander on stage and interrupt or heckle him during the performance. Funny, eh? Yeah! <laughs> well, laugh this off. Meanwhile, Healy and company appeared in their first feature film, Rube Goldberg's Soup to Nuts, in 1930. Shemp became tired of Ted Healy's alcoholism and violent temper and had a falling out that caused him to leave the Three Stooges for another opportunity in show business. With Shemp gone, Moe suggested that Curly fill in for the role of the Third Stooge. But Healy felt that Curly, with his thick chestnut hair and elegant waxed mustache at the time, didn't look funny enough for the role. If at least you don't succeed, keep on sucking till you do succeed. Curly left the room and returned minutes later with his head shaven and got the role. In 1934, MGM was grooming Healy up as a solo comedian in feature films, so Healy dissolved his Stooges act to pursue his own career. 
The team of Howard, Fine, and Howard then renamed their act the Three Stooges. <laughs> that same year, they signed on to appear in two real comedy short subjects for Columbia Pictures. The Stooges soon became the most popular short subject attraction, with Curly playing an integral part in the trio's work. You can't eat me. I'm too tough. I'll give you indigestion. Curly's childlike mannerisms and natural comedic charm made him a hit with audiences, especially with children. He was known in the act for having an indestructible head, which always won out by breaking anything that it hit. Despite having no formal acting training, his comedic skills were exceptional. Many times, directors would simply let the camera roll freely and let Curly improvise. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. By the time the Stooges hit their peak in the late 1930s, their films had almost become vehicles for Curly's unbridled comic performances. Classics like A Plumbing We Will Go in 1940, We Want Our Mummy in 1938, An Ache in Every Steak in 1941, and Cactus Makes Perfect in 1942 displays his ability to take inanimate objects like food, tools, or pipes and turn them into ingenious comic props. <laughs> When Curly forgot his lines, that merely allowed him to improvise on the spot so that the take could continue uninterrupted. Come on, come on! By 1944, Curly's energy began to decline. A Curly whose voice was deeper and his actions slower. After filming of the feature-length Rockin' in the Rockies in December of 1944, he finally checked himself into a cottage hospital in Santa Barbara, California, and was diagnosed with extreme hypertension, a retinal hemorrhage, and obesity. Half-Wit's Holiday, released in 1947, would be Curly's final appearance as an official member of the Stooges. During filming on May 6, 1946, Curly suffered a severe stroke while sitting in director Jules White's chair, waiting to film the last scene of the day. When Curly was called by the assistant director to take the stage, he didn't answer. Mo went looking for his brother. He found Curly with his head dropped down to his chest. Mo later recalled that his mouth was distorted and that he was unable to speak, only cry. Curly partially recovered and with his hair regrown, made a brief cameo appearance as a train passenger barking in his sleep in the third film after his brother Shemp's return. Hold that line. What is that, a cocky spaniel? No, I think it's just a spaniel. It was the only film that featured Larry Fine and all three Howard brothers, Moe, Shimp, and Curly, simultaneously. Still not fully recovered from his stroke, Curly met Valerie Newman and married her on July 31, 1947. Although his health continued to decline after the marriage, Valerie gave birth to a daughter, Janie, in 1948. Later that year, Curly suffered a second massive stroke, which left him partially paralyzed. He used a wheelchair by 1950 and was fed boiled rice and apples as part of his diet to reduce his weight and blood pressure. In February of 1951, he was placed in a nursing home where he suffered another stroke a month later. On January 18, 1952, Curley died at the age of 48. He was given a Jewish funeral and laid to rest at Home of Peace Cemetery in East L.A. Curly's off-screen personality was the antithesis of his on-screen manic persona. An introvert, he generally kept to himself, rarely socializing with people unless he had been drinking, which he would increasingly turn to as the stress of his career grew. Never an intellectual, Curly simply refrained from engaging in crazy antics unless he was in his element, with family, performing, or intoxicated. 
Curly found constant companionship in his dogs and often befriended strays wherever the Stooges were traveling. He would pick up homeless dogs and take them with him from town to town until he found a home somewhere else on the tour. When not performing, he would usually have a few dogs waiting for him at home as well. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Huh? Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Are you trying to give me the double talk? Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Why don't you answer him? He's talking big Latin. I don't know what he's saying. He's asking you if you swear. No, but I know all the words. He's asking you if you'll swear to tell the truth. Truth is stranger than fiction, Judgey Woody. <laughs> Kindly address this court as your honor and take the oath. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Certainly. What have I got to lose? Take the stand. Where did I put it? No, no. Take the stand. I got it. Now what will I do with it? This is our American stories. Great job on that, Jesse. As always, the life of Curly. We do it all here. We promised you that when we started. We keep doing it. One of the great comic geniuses of the 20th century, no doubt. And for centuries beyond. One of the great physical comedians of all time. Perfect timing when he spoke. This is our American story. The life of Jerome Horowitz. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And, well, we love to surprise you with stories and books like the last one, and it's the story of the beard. And I didn't know beards had a story, but they did, and they've come in and out of fashion through the centuries, a reflection of masculinity, and then not. And right now we're in this point where my wife says, stubble is the perfect middle ground between the beard and the non-beard. And so... Trying to keep stubble is another game. It's impossible. I'm trying to do the stubble thing, and it, every time I get the stubble just right, one day later, it's turning into a beard, and then I shave it, and then I have nothing. And so it's very difficult. I'm in a, I'm in a pickle right now. Well, this day in history is what we love to do each and every day here on Our American Stories. And this segment, as always, is brought to, brought to you by Hillsdale College. The best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all things that matter in life. In this feature, you're about to meet someone you've definitely heard of, or at least the characters in his books. But it's likely you only know the Disney version, and not his original creation. Today we feature A.A. Milne. Winnie the Pooh by A.A. Milne, dedicated to her. Hand in hand we come, Christopher Robin and I, to lay this book in your lap. Say you're surprised. Say you like it. Say it's just what you wanted. Because it's yours. Because we love you. Winnie the Pooh 
Martin Alexander Milne, or A.A. A. Milne, creator of Winnie the Pooh, was born in 1882. Milne was the youngest of three sons who taught himself to read at the age of two. He began writing humorous pieces as a schoolboy and continued to do so while attending Cambridge. In 1903, he left Cambridge and went to London to write. Although he was broke by the end of his first year, he persevered and supported himself until 1906, writing detective stories and plays. In 1913, he married his wife Daphne, and two years later, though a pacifist, went to France to serve in World War I. In 1920, the couple's only son, Christopher Robin, was born, and they purchased the farm in Sussex. A nearby forest inspired the Hundred Acre Wood, where Winnie the Pooh's adventures would be set. Milne published two volumes of poetry that would inspire his two Pooh books. When We Were Very Young became the first, and was published in 1924. That was followed by Now We Are Six in 1927. Read by the official voice of the Pooh books, the great Peter Dennis. Christopher Robin said this about Dennis: Peter Dennis has made himself Pooh's ambassador extraordinary, and no bear has ever had a more devoted friend. So, if you want to meet the real Pooh, the bear I knew, the bear my father wrote about, listen to Peter. Here's a verse: The good little girl. It's funny how often they say to me, "Jane, have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl?" And when they have said it, they say it again, "Have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl?" I go to a party. I go out to tea. I go to an aunt for a week at the sea. I come back from school or from playing a game. Wherever I come from, it's always the same. Well, have you been a good girl, Jane? It's always the end of the loveliest day. Have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl? I went to the zoo and they waited to say, "Have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl?" Well, what did they think that I went there to do? And why should I want to be bad at the zoo? And should I be likely to say if I had? So that's why it's funny of Mummy and Dad this asking and asking in case I was bad. Well, have you been a good girl, Jane? When Christopher Robin was about a year old, he received a stuffed bear as a present. The child soon accumulated a collection of similar animals, which inspired Milne to begin writing a series of whimsical stories about the toys. Christopher Robin's actual stuffed toys are now under glass in the New York Public Library, where 750,000 people visit them every year. Winnie the Pooh was published in 1926, and The House at Pooh Corner. In 1928, Ernest Shepherd marvelously illustrated the books, using Christopher Robin and his animals as models. After Milne's death in 1956, the rights to the Pooh characters were sold to the Walt Disney Company, which has made many Pooh cartoon movies, a Disney Channel television show, as well as Pooh-related merchandise. It is very important to note. That the Pooh characters in Milne's books have only superficial commonalities with the Disney's repackaged product. All the complexity and wonderful character development is replaced with an all-smiling, all-the-time bland band of one-dimensional Disney-fied rip-offs.
Forbes magazine ranked Winnie the Pooh the most valuable fictional character in 2002. Winnie the Pooh merchandising products alone had an annual sales of more than $5.9 billion. In 2005, Winnie the Pooh generated $6 billion, a figure surpassed by only Mickey Mouse. For too long, Winnie the Pooh has been relegated to children's bookshelves and Disney children's cartoons. But what you probably don't know is that A.A. A. Milne didn't write the stories and poems for children. He intended them for the child within you and me and countless millions of others. In the last Pooh book, The House at Pooh Corner, Milne writes the final dialogue between Pooh and a maturing Christopher Robin in a way that only an adult could connect with. To be candid, I cry every time I get to this part. Christopher Robin, who was still looking at the world with his chin in his hands, called out, Pooh? Yes, said Pooh. When I'm... When... <sighs> Pooh? Yes, Christopher Robin. I'm not going to do nothing any more. Never again? Well, not so much. They don't let you. Pooh waited for him to go on, but he was silent again. Yes, Christopher Robin, said Pooh helpfully. Pooh, when I'm, you know, when I'm not doing nothing, will you come up here sometimes? Just me? Yes, Pooh. Will you be here too? Yes, Pooh, I will be, really. I promise I will be, Pooh. That's good, said Pooh. Pooh, promise you won't forget about me ever, not even when I'm a hundred. Pooh thought for a little. How old shall I be then? Ninety-nine. Pooh nodded. I promise, he said. Still with his eyes on the world, Christopher Robin put out a hand and felt for Pooh's paw. Pooh, said Christopher Robin earnestly, if I... Uh, if I'm not quite... Uh, he stopped and tried again. Pooh... Whatever happens, you will understand, won't you? Understand what? Oh, nothing. He laughed and jumped to his feet. Come on. Where? Said Pooh. Anywhere, said Christopher Robin. So they went off together. But wherever they go, and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing. A. A. Milne This Day in History This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. Great job on that, Greg. A. A. Milne's Latin translation of, Win translation of Winnie the Pooh is the only Latin book to ever crack the New York Times bestseller list. The 1960 release stayed on the coveted list for 20 weeks and ultimately demanded 21 printings, selling 125,000 copies. This accomplishment spoke in part to the book itself, which the Times called, quote, the greatest book a dead language has ever known. But it is also evidence of Pooh's popularity. The adventures of this honey-loving bear have been translated into more than 50 languages, including Afrikaans, Czech, Finnish, and Yiddish. Greg, this uh, 
this Disney sort of caricature simplification of Pooh. Talk about it a bit before we go to the break. Well, <clears throat> in Milne's creation, um, Eeyore is, is definitely... Th- there's basically two categories in Milne's world. There's the intellectuals, which is Owl, Eeyore, and... Um, and uh, uh, there's one other. There's a, and then there's the kind of brain-dead people, the, the simpletons, which is Pooh, Piglet, and um, somebody else. And so you have these dynamic ranges of people who think they're smart or people who are these animals that are sad and happy. But in Disney, take a look at any coloring book, any story, any movie. All of them are smiling. All of them have the same expression on their face. All of them have the same tone in their voice. Everything's perfect. Everything's great. And they're all the same. It's just boring. So they're homogenized. Yeah. Essentially. Well, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the life of A.A. Milne. And the life of Winnie the Pooh. Right after the history of beards. That's what you get here at Our American Stories. You never know what you're going to get. I never know what I get when I walk in. More after this. <laughs> 